0: Welcome to Good Friday the most important stories are the stories we tell over and over these are the stories that shape us that remind us of who we are and who God is and what the world means and where hope is to be found on Good Friday we retell and relive and re-experience the death of God this is the day when the worst thing happens but it is also the day when we remember the lengths to which love goes you might have noticed the banners that have been hanging in our lobby for the last six weeks each of these pieces of artwork represents one of the last sayings of Jesus from the cross recorded by the gospel writers. These sayings aren't chronological, but instead they invite us to consider the many dimensions of meaning revealed to us on the cross. And the tradition of contemplating the last seven sayings gives us a way to enter into the events of Good Friday, not to sit outside of them and examine them, but to allow them to examine us to form us, to remind us of the crucifixion, one of our most important stories, the crux of not only our faith, but of reality. Today, we tell this story again in a new way. We will enter into the seven sayings by listening to scripture, meditating together on its meaning, and then responding. And we'll end our time together with an invitation to communion.
1: There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said... Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the King of the Jews, save
0: yourself. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. These first words of Jesus are words of forgiveness. And because of it, we might be excused if at first glance, at first ponder, We think this journey through the seven sayings will be an easy one. But let's look a little closer. Let's take in this scene. These words are not spoken as they would be to a misbehaving toddler when we turn and cover our smiling faces with our hands at their antics. They don't understand what they do. They're just so cute. What we see here is ritual humiliation. It is state-sanctioned torture. The cross in Latin was called "damnatio ad bestius. It was to be condemned to the death of a beast. It stripped the victim of their humanity. This is the scene into which Jesus speaks these words. This scene does not make sin small. This cross reveals the truth of sin, the crushing disappointment, the violence, the heartbreak, the death. This cross exposes the full length and breadth of it. It makes it visible. It's terrible, crushing, destructive power. But feeling the full weight of this, Jesus does not respond in kind. He does not collude with sin. He does not make excuses for it. He lets sin reveal the full extent of its power, and then he reveals his own power. He forgives. Astounded, we might lean in to take a closer look. And taking a closer look, we might find ourselves in this scene. We look down and we see the nail in our own hands. Look at that nail that you brought in with you. Feel that nail. This nail that pierced the hand of the God who took on and killed the sin that we let rule our hearts and mark our paths. The sin that maybe we didn't intend, but still feel the weight of. The sin we can't seem to maneuver or manage. The sin that has ruined this thing or that person. The sin that is baked into our systems and structures. Or maybe, This nail is the one we want to drive deeply into someone who has broken us through their sin. We want them to feel the pain, the weight, the brokenness. We want to nail them. Pondering this scene, we see the sin is already exposed. The nails driven. The response by the God of the universe given. Father, forgive them. As you feel the prick of the nail in your hand, hold the truth of this scene in your heart and listen to the song. And as you listen, tie the red ribbon around the nail, a symbol of the forgiveness spoken on this cross.
2: Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy.
1: has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise.
0: Truly, today you will be with me in paradise paradise the incongruity of this word in the midst of this scene is staggering these thieves were not just sticky fingered pickpockets hiding chocolate bars under their coats at the local corner store some of the Gospels call them bandits they were men of violence they were men who would steal and kill A thief in paradise? This is the only time that Jesus uses this word, paradise. A word that speaks of the fullness, the lushness, the peace of the Garden of Eden. It is the sum of total blessedness. As in life, in his death, Jesus numbers himself among those who have found themselves rejected. The outsiders, those with nothing to lose, the best man finds himself where good men never go. And nothing distinguishes him from those he hangs between except the words of this thief, Jesus. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Remember me. Put me back together. Heal me. Bring me to the place where I will experience again the sum of total blessedness. Do we not, like this thief, long to be remembered? We desperately want it, fearing we are nothing. And this forgotten one, this thief, reminds us who remembers us. What will separate us from God's remembering? Not height, nor depth, not past or present, nor things to come. Nothing will separate us from God's remembering, from God's healing. Jesus goes to the place where no good man goes. He goes to those with nothing left to lose, the unsalvageable, the unlovable, the forgotten, the losers, the castoffs, and the sinners, and he remembers them. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Please listen or sing along.
2: change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in
1: Standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, And here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home.
0: Dear woman, here is your son, and here is your mother. Having spoken of paradise, the place of total blessedness, the perspective of this scene changes. Instead of heavenly bliss, we see the chaos and pain of those who love Jesus. Those who witness the death of their son, of their friend, those standing in front of the cross. Our eyes are drawn to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary grew this man in her body She bore him as a baby, she potty trained him and comforted him and cuddled him. She buried her face in his hair and took a deep breath. She watched him toddle around with his first steps and then watched him use those steps to walk away from her. And the rest of her story is the story of her letting go. Mary was first Jesus' mother, but through distance, through letting go, she is welcomed as his disciple. And in the words of Richard Newhouse, the way of discipleship is the way of broken hearts. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, cannot escape a broken heart. It's a guarantee on the path of discipleship. The irony of this scene is that the suffering we take in is also the heartbreaking labor of a new family being formed. In this scene, we recognize Mary as the new Eve, woman, who in taking the hand of the beloved disciple becomes the mother of a new family where all are welcomed via their own deaths and their own heartbreaks. Dear woman, here is your son and here is your mother. Please watch this video in response.
1: When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthanai, which means my God, my God, why have you
0: forsaken me? In this cry of dereliction, Jesus, abandoned by God, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words used here of Jesus, he cried out, are the same words used when the crowds would gather around Jesus, crying out for his healing, for his attention, a man crying out to Jesus to rescue his only son, the blind man crying out, Jesus, son of David, will you have mercy on me? The one who was sought out is now the seeker. In the ultimate act of identification with abandoned humanity, Jesus, son of God, becomes the one who experiences God's abandonment, God's silence. In the cry of Jesus, we hear echo the cry of every human who has ever felt or has been abandoned by God. God, where are you and why have you left me? But this is not just Jesus, the human, crying out to God. This is not God separating God's self from this feeling, from this experience of abandonment. No, God is not doing this to God's Son. This man is God. This is God submitting God's self to the experience of abandonment. In this cry, we see revealed the truest thing about God, that God will become God's antithesis. God will go to extremes to redeem humanity. God will empty God's self of even a sense of God's own presence in order to redeem the creation God loves. And here is the irony. Now, because God's self is abandoned, God is revealed when God seems hidden. God suffers the full consequences of sin so that now there is no place where God is not present, is not revealed, even in this moment in the abandonment of God. In this moment, God is present in the forsaken so that nobody, nobody ever, nobody anywhere, at any time, under any circumstances, is ever again forsaken by God. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Let's sing together. Mm
1: After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth.
0: Who of us has sat at the bedside of someone dying? Who has been asked for ice chips or held that small stick with a sponge attached to moisten the lips of a loved one who can no longer swallow? To be thirsty and not be able to quench your own thirst. What vulnerability? The God of the universe dying says, I thirst. He too has his lips moistened with a sponge. He feels a thirst he cannot quench on his own. The vulnerability of this scene is one of the most tender of our journey through the seven sayings. Jesus, the living water, needs water. How can the one who claims, if you are thirsty, come to me, drink, out of you will flow rivers of living water, have no way to quench his own thirst? Well, the chapter before gives us a clue. Jesus says to Peter as he tries to rescue Jesus from his captors, put your sword back in its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? Jesus is drinking fully of the cup that the Father has given him to drink. He is throwing it back and there is nearly nothing left. He is doing what he has come to do and he is thirsty for it. The vulnerability of Jesus becomes our salvation. He is the one who thirsts to drink the cup God gave him to the dregs because of his thirst for us. And in this vulnerability, Jesus reveals that it is through vulnerability that God satiates the unquenchable thirst of the world. It is on this cross that our thirst for God meets God's thirst for us. In this scene, the sponge is lifted to the lips of Jesus on a branch of hyssop, the branch that was used in Exodus 12 to smear blood on the doorposts to rescue the Israelites from the angel of death. Jesus, in his thirst, reveals that he is the Passover lamb who will rescue humanity from death. Can you see this scene The dawning of the new covenant in his blood. Will you drink? I thirst. Please sing with us.
1: Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit.
0: It is finished. Finally, the suffering is over. Finally, in death, Jesus is rescued from the pain of abandonment. Finally, Jesus can fall back into defeat. Maybe now we can look away. Maybe now this terrible thing is done. Thank God that's over. But this is not what these words mean. The finish Jesus speaks of here does not mean... Thank goodness that's over but it is accomplished the purpose for which for which Jesus has come has been completed everything that was supposed to happen has happened it is complete it is not simply over it is finished wrapped in what looks like the defeat of God, is God's defeat of evil, of abandonment, of separation. It is God absorbing the worst evil could throw at God and never acting in kind. God is not defeated, God is conqueror. This is not the sigh of defeat, it is the cry of victory. This cry of, it is finished, means that when we are finished, defeated by despair, crushed by sin, overcome with with failure, our end has not come. When we have used up all the rope that life has given us, when we are hanging by a thread, well, that's God's address at the end of our rope. And when it feels like the only end is death, we find there our dead God on a cross. If the death of God is a victory, there is no ending in our lives where God cannot be found. It is finished, but it is not yet over. It is finished means it is settled, decided, certain, complete, and incontestable. Nothing can happen now to undo it. There is nothing to fear. The worst has already happened. On a certain Friday afternoon, it could be said, God is dead. And there is no catastrophe beyond the death of God. But God Having accepted extinction, the light of his love cannot be extinguished. It is finished. Let's sing together.
2: A better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. Your blood speaks a better word. Then all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth speaks righteousness for me stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood.
1: it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour and then the Sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice he said father into your hands I commit my spirit And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the certain centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee. They stood at a distance watching these things.
0: Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having lived completely abandoned to the purposes of God, Jesus' last words are another statement of complete faith, of submission to the love of the Trinity. Having drunk his cup to the dregs, having suffered all he was meant to suffer, Jesus reveals who God is and destroys whatever gap we may have thought might exist between us and God. Jesus came as the revealer of love. Jesus reveals God by being utterly transparent to him, and what has been cloaked in mystery is clear in Jesus. God is love. The cross reveals who our God is, self-giving, a God who loves us unto death, who will not leave us at the end of our rope, who will forgive every sin and redeem every dark place. God is utterly trustworthy. And like Jesus, we can commit our own lives and our own deaths into the hands of God. Maybe you still hold that nail in your hand what is the thing that you think still can keep you or someone else from the love of god where is it you think that love cannot reach what is it that you think might still keep jesus nailed to that cross even though it is finished what is it that you are not sure this cross has dealt with definitively can you submit this thing to the crucified Christ trusting that what needs to be dealt with is already finished is already done into God's hands that sin you try so hard to hide or manage into God's hands that betrayal you still carry with you Into God's hands, your illness, your unknown future. Into God's hands, that beloved child or friend. All of it, into God's hands. Friends, it is finished. We can commit ourselves into God's hands. In response to this last movement, we're gonna welcome you to come forward to receive communion. And as you come, you'll notice that there are metal buckets in front of the tables. I invite you to drop your nail in that bucket as you pass by. That nail representing that thing you want to commit to God. It is finished. Commit it into the hands of this good Father let it go i invite you as i invite you to come and participate in communion i want to remind you that this is an act of remembering but it is not over and so we continue to tell this story by eating this meal to remind ourselves that our call is to over and over and over again Surrender ourselves to this cross, to find life in this death. As you come, you're either invited to take bread and juice and eat it right away at the table, but there are also pods available on the tables to take back to your seat, if you'd prefer. Come. Paul The most important stories are the ones we tell over and over again. We have told the story of Good Friday once again, and as you go, you are invited once again to find yourself in it and to let it form you. Without speaking, go in the uneasy peace of this Good Friday.